Well, a very good morning to you all. Today, at, at long last, we're going to start um, doing a bit of proper Bible study. I mean, it's, it's okay to preach and all that sort of thing, but we really need to be centering what we teach on, uh, on the Bible. And today we're going to start a new look at uh, Philippians. <clears throat> for many Christians, this is their favorite epistle, and there's lots of good reasons for that. It's absolutely stuffed with quotable quotes, and it's also... Well, it's uniquely encouraging, I think. So at least as a superficial level, it makes for both a comforting and a comfortable read. But as we press on through this series, I suspect one of the jobs that the teaching team is going to have to undertake is to try and make it a little less comfortable and a bit more challenging than it is at first glance. Because if we're really going to understand Philippians properly and apply its truths correctly to our own lives then we need to read it with at least one eye on the extreme discomfort current in the lives of its first readers and their extraordinary successes despite that discomfort. Uh, Philippi was a prosperous town on the Egnatian Way, which was a key trading route in the Greco-Roman world, but its history was troubled. A thriving Macedonian city for centuries... In 42 BC, it became the scene of a notable battle in the Roman Civil War, following which it was taken over, more or less by force, as a military colony, really basically for the disbanded soldiers from that conflict. A few years later, still massively dominated by Roman army veterans, it was granted the rare honour of its own autonomous government. Substantial immunity from paying taxes to Rome, and full Roman citizenship, which was a big deal, at least for some of its people. Not for nothing did the most influential people in the town feel a strong loyalty to Rome. And part of that deal, as it always was in the ancient world, was the cult of emperor as god. In fact, the emperor, uh, Caesar Augustus, was known specifically by the title of lord and saviour, which, as you can imagine, didn't sit any more easily with Johnny or Jane Christian in those days than it would today. Such was the town's history, its local tradition, and such also was still its political position some 80 years later when Paul first visited Philippi and founded the fledgling church there. It was then not in any way a comfortable place in which to be a Christian. Paul and Silas themselves on that first missionary journey were flogged, imprisoned, and forced to leave, basically for what I think uh, the McCarthyites would have called un-Roman activities. You can read about that in Acts 16. And despite this unpromising background, however, some 12 years later, when Paul wrote the letter we now call Philippians, the church had grown enormously. At the end of Acts 16, all we know was that two households had been converted. But by the time of writing, which is probably 62 AD, the church was extensive enough, as we read in Philippians 1.1, to need several overseers and deacons. And nobody knows exactly what those titles mean or what the leaders did or how many people each one of them led, probably in a collection of house churches. But what is obvious is that despite the massive opposition that they experienced, the church had grown and organized significantly in about the same short period of time that this little church has been in existence here. In the intervening time, Paul and others had often visited and advised them. And in the process, an unusually close bond had been formed between the Philippians and Paul. It might not be uh, immediately obvious to those without a a classical education, like myself, 
Um, but this letter is, in fact, a particular classical form. It is a friendship letter. And that, that is a whole deal that we're not really aware of in our own culture. In that culture, close friendships were formalized to uh, an almost contractual degree. It was a special relationship conferring rights and duties. The right to sort of give and take advice, gifts, protection, assistance of all kinds, to an extent that we would find not only unusual but actually pretty alarming. So as we read this letter, we should be strongly aware, first, that the Philippian church, or churches, whichever it is, are operating in an extremely hostile environment, but second, that Paul is here writing to them very much this classical form, a friendship letter. Like most such letters, this one speaks of an unusual level of mutual understanding and love. It describes the joys and trials and sufferings of one party, Paul, as belonging equally to the other. It points unashamedly to the example of a mutual hero, in this case, Jesus Christ, and also to that of the writer himself in living a good life. It expresses gratitude for their considerable help and support, both moral and financial. And it also gives advice that they are expected to take, not because Paul is their boss, but because he is their friend. Paul is writing almost certainly from house arrest in Rome under a likely sentence of death. And what he writes is, above all, an encouragement not to be satisfied with what they've achieved, but to press on to the next level and beyond that, to the higher calling of God in Jesus Christ. With all that in mind, let's read together Philippians 1, 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, it's not perhaps immediately obvious, but after the uh, greeting in the first two verses, there's a definite tick-tock swing between two subjects. Verses 3 to 5 and 7 to 8 are all about reaffirming Paul's special relationship with his readers. Well done, chaps. But if those are the ticks of the pendulum, then the tocks come in verse 6 and again at verses 9 to 11, which introduce the main theme of the letter, 
spiritual growth and development. So let's just begin with a few words on the greeting itself, and then we'll get on to that uh, tick and tock. So number one, the greeting. In almost all of Paul's letters, he introduces himself specifically as an apostle. He's stating a top-down relationship from the very outset. What follows on from that is in the nature of a formal instruction, which he's been authorized by God to deliver to them so they'd better listen. Apart from Philippians, only one and two Thessalonians address the readers as friends and equals. And even there, the characteristics of an actual friendship letter are much less marked than they are in Philippians. And that relational difference can be seen in the history, in the fact that Paul was happy to receive financial assistance from Philippi, whereas Thessalonica, he was, uh, when he was in Thessalonica, he was entirely self-supported. He did his own work and got his own income. The Philippian Christians were on a different level of fellowship with him. As witness verse 1, where Paul introduces himself and Timothy just as servants of Jesus Christ, placing himself on exactly the same footing as every single one of his readers. So I think the first thing to recognize is we shouldn't take on ourselves too easy an equivalence with the church at Philippi, as we read what St. Paul wrote to them. They were best in class. They were the star pupils. Yet he still urges them to press on. We need to ask ourselves honestly if he would write, us, uh, write to us in, in quite the same terms. I think, I think probably not. I'm sure he would encourage us, like them, to step up a level from where we now stand. But we'd be quite wrong to think that we're starting from the same place. We're not persecuted as they were. We don't give as generously as they did. And we don't share the gospel as readily as they must have done in order to see the growth that they've achieved. Frankly, I think very few of us would get a friendship letter from Paul if he were writing to us today. But we could still aspire to be more like the Philippians. And if we're to do so, the advice Paul gives to them is, if anything, more important for us than it was for them. I'm also sure he would greet us with the very same blessing of grace and peace which he bestows on them and which opens every one of his letters, even when he has extremely harsh things to say. When we read St. Paul, we tend to skate a little lightly over those greetings without learning one obvious, important and totally neglected lesson from them. He always greeted people with a blessing of grace and peace from God himself. How then should we approach our fellow believers? At times he was addressing people who owed him their very spiritual life, their conversion. Yet they'd deserted him and spat on his teachings. They slandered him, fallen into all kinds of foolishness and sin. Yet even then, he always approaches them with the same open-handed blessing. Maybe we could try doing the same as we bump into Christians over the next couple of weeks or so and see uh, what the result is. That we meet people with an attitude of blessing them with grace and peace from God himself. Let me know how you get on. So part two brings us to the first tick of the pendulum. Tick, tock. These words represent a tick in, in two senses. We find them uh, verses three to six. We just, yeah, there we are. It's a big tick in the sense of Paul, as it were, marking the work of the Philippians 
as regards their constant partnership in the gospel. Their success in this is, is evident, as we've said, from the fact that they've grown in around 12 years from just two households into an array of house churches requiring several overseers and deacons. And that seems to have been two, two different tiers of church leadership. So they are certainly partners with Paul in that sense, even in that extremely hostile environment. But it also becomes evident that they're partners with him in his own personal work, supporting him financially in prayer and friendship, sending some of their brightest and best to work with him. To all this, Paul puts a big tick. Well done. But I think it's also a tick in the sense of the tick-tock of a pendulum, which regulates the working of a clock mechanism. I don't know if anyone's actually got a clock that isn't digital these days. You actually have a clock with a pendulum. The, you can adjust the length of the, of the pendulum to make the clock go slightly faster or slightly slower. If you raise the pendulum, it goes a bit quicker. So it, it doesn't provide the actual motion for the hands of the clock. That's from a spring, but it regulates it. These verses, by accident or design... Um, Paul is illustrating an extremely constructive rhythm, I think, in the life of a disciple. At one end of the pendulum swing is the encouragement that comes from recognizing the good work done so far. But at the other end of the swing is the spur to keep on improving. A few years back, when I was beginning to have problems with my knees, I was climbing Snowden with some buddies from my then church, unwise, some would say. With about a 1,000 feet still to go, I started to seriously count the cost, thinking how I was going to suffer on the way back down if I went any further up. And that's where my mate Big Mark came into his own. He was a chap who was so huge, he probably could have carried me down bodily if the need had arisen. Um, But what he did was he stopped every time that I stopped, and he did two things. The first was to admire the view with me, looking back down the way we'd come. And the second was to say, just imagine how great the view would be from the next ridge. And that same tick-tock rhythm of encouragement can be just what we need as we try to follow Jesus up the mountain of discipleship. We have to stop and rest from time to time and see how far we've already come. Many in this room are doubtful that they've come any distance at all. That's because you don't stop and look. If you look back, you'll see that you have. But we also need people around us who are going to spur us on to the next stage and the stage after that. Preferably they would be people who, in emergency, could carry us back down the hill again. But they should also be people with the wisdom to remind us how worthwhile the journey so far has been. And also to direct our immediate attention only to the next ridge, even if their sneaky agenda is actually to get us up to the summit. And for the record, Mark did get me to the top. And there we met some interesting tourists who'd come up on the train wearing full mountaineering kit, took a photograph and got back on the train and went back down again. Uh, But there we are. Well, I think all of us can be an encourager like Mark to somebody. But equally, I think we all need that kind of encouragement too. So I think the question this poses for us is, who am I walking with? What kind of people am I walking with? Who am I listening to? What kind of voices? Because there are plenty of voices out there, some of them people quite close to us, which constantly tell us either that we've done enough so we can stop right where we are, or worse yet, that it's a complete waste of time, so we might as well give up. So who are we hanging out with? 
Are they encouraging us as St. Paul would? Or are they subtly, quite unintentionally, undercutting our drive to go further and faster? And of course, the other thing that verse 3 reminds us of is the importance of praying for those who share our life's journey. So that was the the first tick. The first tock comes in verse 6. And uh, this is part one of sort of the opposing encouragement. In the second talk, which we'll come to in a moment, and in much of the rest of the letter too, Paul's going to talk about the part uh, that we have to play in our own development. But before we come on to that, we have to remember, first of all, that Jesus himself plans to finish the job he started in us. We always have to remember this every time we get discouraged along the way. We're not there yet, and that's quite okay. We don't have to be. We don't have to be disappointed by the occasional failure. But don't stop growing either. And as we do press on, we aren't really the prime movers in the process at all. We're just cooperating with a much more powerful ally who's going to get us there. Much of our job is simply to keep out of the way as much as we can. As the pendulum of encouragement swings, the tick is, well done so far. And the tock is, you're not done yet. Well done, you're not done. Well done, you're not done. But the mainspring of our forward motion is not the encouragement of our own will and effort, much as that helps. It is actually the ongoing work of Jesus himself through his spirit. And he's not done with us yet. Now, like many uh, new converts, I was, I was initially brought up principally on the, the great idea of Christ's completed work for us on the cross. So when I first came across this verse, I found it rather shocking. Ooh, he who began a good work in me? Surely the all-sufficient death of Jesus in my place was quite enough. Well, of course, no one is more definite than St. Paul himself on that, on that subject. You know, by, by grace are you saved through faith, you know, not by works that no one can boast, and so on and so on. But with the possible exception of Jesus himself, no one is tougher on the subject of growth and development in our faith. And we're going to find that out as we read on in the letter. As we do so, we're going to find a lot of references to what God has already done for us, but even more to what, with his help, we can do to develop ourselves. As the theologian Dallas Willard pithily reminds us, grace is not opposed to effort. But the first thing Paul wants us to grasp in all his encouragement to forge ahead is this, that though God won't override our will, if we allow him to do so, he himself will bring to completion the good work he started in our lives. And just one final thought on this verse. Judgment day at the end of the world is here called the day of Jesus Christ. Those who think that Jesus has had his day have got another think coming. It's become distinctly uncool to talk about what Hebrews refers to simply as the day. But as we read the New Testament, it's clear that it was very much in the minds of both the writers and its first readers alike. And I suspect they were all the better for it. Number four, the second tick. This occupies verses seven and eight. Now Paul swings back from the you're not done uh, of verse six to a second dose of well done. But this is one of those occasions where we really need to, to look up to the Philippians rather than assuming that we're just like them. He's right, he says in verse 7, 
in their case, to be sure that Jesus is going to finish what he started in them. But that's because they've already proved to be partakers with Paul in grace. In two matters which few of us in this room can really claim. One is in his imprisonment. And as we've seen, this probably means more than merely sending him gifts during his incarceration. They've also suffered persecution like him for their faith. They've also needed God's grace to keep them faithful. And the other thing that got them persecuted in the first place was defending and confirming the gospel. Of course, we're not responsible for becoming a persecuted people. And it wouldn't be very advisable to do so even if we could. It wouldn't be, uh, at least not for its own sake. But we could certainly be a bit better at proclaiming or defending the gospel than we are. Better at confirming its truth. And I believe confirming the gospel is done by two things. They talk a lot about uh, apologetics and the, um, the rational argument in defense of the gospel. But I believe that the only apologetic that's worth a flying fig in this culture is a life well lived. It's the only thing people are really listening to. But the other uh, way of confirming the gospel is by what the Bible calls signs and wonders. And for that, see specifically Mark 16, verses 17 and 18, and Acts 4, verse 30. When Jesus sent out the 12 and then sent out the 72 to preach the gospel, he gave them power to heal the sick and cast out demons. Because the preaching and the demonstration of the kingdom have to go hand in hand in our own lives as they did in Jesus' own life. We've just heard how how God healed Susie's ear. And I'm sure that uh, God's primary motivation in doing so was simply that he loved his daughter and wanted her to be well. But healing is also a sign of God's kingdom already present in our here and now. And we should be seeking and seeing much more of it than we do at the moment. So in this TikTok rhythm of encouragement, we should be encouraged that that has happened for Susie. But we should also be encouraged, all of us, to press into God for more. And that's going to mean jumping in more often than we do to lay hands on the sick and heal them. We'll have a chance to practice that in just a few minutes as we pray for each other. But it should also be our regular practice out in the wider world. The most dramatic healings that I've seen myself have been among people of little or no faith. And on reflection, if you read the Bible, you'll see that's how it was in New Testament times too. So we don't need to wait to be in church or at home group in order to offer healing prayer. Well, Jesus didn't, neither did his followers. It's as we become more like the Philippians, in our generosity, in our defense and confirmation of the gospel, that we can begin to enjoy as they did, the confidence of our own friends and mentors, that Jesus will indeed finish in us the good work which he has already started. Verse 7 says, I'm right to feel this certainty about your future precisely because of your partnership in the gospel. It's not that Jesus won't complete his work uh, in us unless we we do this and that and the other thing. It's more like 2 Peter 1 verse 10, which we touched on a fortnight ago. If you remember, Peter is there speaking about the process of growing in grace. And he finishes by saying, Therefore, give all the more diligence to make your calling and election sure. 
He's not saying that if you do all these things, you can somehow buy your own salvation. He's saying that if you want to be sure, and if you want others to be sure of your calling and election, which, by the way, are both terms that that put our salvation in completely somebody else's hands, not ours, then we have to pay close attention to that process of spiritual growth. That's how we make it sure. The Philippians have already done enough to make their calling and election sure, but he still encourages them to press on to the next level. And he finishes that little section in verse 8 by telling them yet again, in language so strong that those of us who have the disadvantage, like myself, of being born British, they find it rather embarrassing. He tells them how much he loves and longs to be with them. But actually it's even more than that. In the same breath, he reminds them that it's not just soppy old Paul. Now, how many people have the privilege of thinking of Paul in that way? Just the Philippians. Not just soppy old Paul who feels this way about them. It's Jesus himself, too. That we can lay claim to. The whole doctrine of grace depends on the fact that whatever we do, we can't make God love us any more. And we can't make God love us any less. As Paul himself puts it in Romans 5 verse 8. By the way, once again at the end of a passage about spiritual development. God commends his own love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we already have God's love and we're never going to lose it. Now let's press on to become the people we're meant to be. People who actively share that love with an often cold, damaged and loveless world. Which brings us to number five, our final talk, uh, verses nine to 11. Once again, Paul here mentions his prayers for them. Prayer is more important and more effective than any of us imagines. Not only for world issues and great generalities, but also for the ordinary people we know and love too. And perhaps especially the people that we know and don't love. In the wise words, uh, wise words of Saint Billy of Joel, your mama never cared for me, but did she ever say a prayer for me? Once again, Paul's prayer, even for these successful beloved people, is that they're going to grow. He prays first and foremost that their love, already abundant, will overflow more and more. Anyone who's uh, ever read 1 Corinthians 13, which probably means if you've ever been to a wedding, You shouldn't be surprised at this emphasis, though few Christians really act as if we believed it. As bolt-ons to that superabundant love, he also wants them to increase in knowledge and discernment, verse 10, so that they'll be able to judge accurately, not merely what's good, but what is excellent. And of course, in Paul's thinking, what is excellent, as you remember from 1 Corinthians 12, 32, a more excellent way I'll show you, What is more excellent is love. Love is the principal means by which these Philippian Christians are going to become pure and blameless on the day, yes, there it is again, of Christ. In contemporary Christianity, of all flavors, not many people hold the same value system as Paul in relation to knowledge and understanding on one side and love on the other. His view, clearly expressed here, is that true knowledge of God, of his ways and his word, will lead us inexorably back 
to value love above everything else. As he says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, knowledge puffs people up, love builds people up. He of all people, perhaps the greatest scholar of his age, isn't against knowledge, as verse 9 here proves. But as he famously says in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2, even if he'd had all the knowledge in the world, he'd be nothing without love. So if we want to know what is excellent, we don't have to look too far to find out. We really don't need a vast understanding of theology in order to answer that question. Yet as we increase in true knowledge, we will prove what is excellent again and again. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13 says this, Faith, hope and love remain these three, and the greatest of these is love. And finally, verse 11, sneaking in almost unnoticed, here comes the primary motivation behind the entire letter. And that is that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You may have noticed Galatians, uh, references to Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit have crept into every one of the last three talks, and this is no exception. It's almost as if God was wanting to teach us something. I say that fruitfulness is Paul's primary motivation in this letter, not just because of its place of honour at the end of these introductory remarks, but also that right at the end of the letter, he mentions it again in chapter 4, verse 17, where he says, I seek the fruit that increases to your account. A fruitful life is a fulfilled life. Fruit bears the seed. So a fruitful life is also a life that's capable of reproducing itself. The fruit of the Spirit, as you probably remember, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But as Cal reminded us last week, fruit is not something that's given in a moment as a gift. It's something that has to grow slowly by a process. And as verse 11 tells us, it comes into being through Jesus Christ. So as Jesus himself taught us famously in John 15, we branches have to remain in the vine if we're to bear much fruit. We're not there yet, but that's fine because God plans to get us there. Tick tock, well done everyone, but you're not done. Now move on. In the days and years ahead, may we be, be people of encouragement ourselves, growing in love and fruitfulness through our vital connection to Jesus. But may we also learn to surround ourselves with those who will encourage us, both to look back with our own lives with, with the same favour that God feels when he looks at us. Well done. You've made progress. Now keep on going. Amen. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, Lord of all life, we, um, we offer our lives to you once again this morning. We're not sure sometimes about the people who 
who's around us. Not sure about this thing called church. Don't know quite where we fit in. But we, but we love you. We value you, Lord. And we want to know more of your ways. We want to follow you more closely than we do. So would you come and touch us with your Holy Spirit now to enable us to, to see the truth, to know the truth and the truth will set us free. So come, Holy Spirit, now and move among your people.